So last time we were together in Christology, uh, we've been, we were looking at the resurrection of Christ. This will actually be our, our third, uh, lecture, our lesson in the resurrection of Christ. Um, because the resurrection of Christ has so many different aspects to it that it's very hard to just do one. Um, especially from the way theologians talk about the resurrection. Um, so this is our third time looking at the resurrection of Christ. Uh, last time we were together, we talked about the resurrection of Christ uh, with this specific question of who raised Christ from the dead. Um, and we learned that uh, the resurrection of Christ is a Trinitarian work. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, I can use this, this language loosely, all had a hand in raising the human soul uh, and united it with Christ's human body. Okay, so it was a Trinitarian work. Um, and because the resurrection of Christ is a Trinitarian work, um, since we are united to Christ by faith, then by the Spirit, we participate in the very life of the Trinity um, and that mutual love relationship between the Father and the Son. Um, so the Trinity raises Christ from the dead so that we may participate in the very life of the Trinity. Um, and we looked a little bit at that, and we will look at more at that when we talk about union with Christ. Uh, this evening, though, we want to look at the resurrection of Christ from the aspect of justification. Now, last time we were together, um, I think that it was very important for us to know um, how the resurrection of Christ was a Trinitarian act. And this, I think out of all the lessons I've taught, is one of the most important, because this is a gospel-centered issue. I mean, what divides us from, and it's kind of fitting that we talk about this coming out of um, Reformation Day, what divides us from Roman Catholics? Um, there are many things, uh, but the central issue, um, because this, one's, this central issue um, touches on so many other things, it is the doctrine of justification. How is one made right before God? We're going to say... One is made right before God by the Father imputing the righteousness of Christ on account, on our account. Um, Roman Catholics are going to say it's more of a transformative thing where you, where justification comes in phases. We're not going to say that. Um, we're going to say that when God declare or when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed unto you. That's justification. You have a legal status before God of innocence. That's justification. And that's what we, that's why we believe in the way the Protestant reformers taught the gospel, right? That there is nothing that we can do to have a right standing before God, but it's only on the account of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That one has a right standing before God. Now, if one was to ask you, how do you know? That you are innocent of all charges. How do you know that? Specifically, what area of Christ's work can you attest that to? And you might say, well, the life of Christ and the death of Christ. He lives a perfect life for me. Earns for me a righteous stat, uh, status uh, um, and a righteous stand before God. Um, his death takes away my sin. And a lot of times we don't even consider the resurrection, when Paul says in Romans 4 that Christ was raised, 
for our justification. Isn't that interesting? He says that Christ was raised for justification. So according to Paul, there is a great link between justification, which is this legal status that we have before God of innocent, and that great event on the third day when Christ rose from the dead. There is a there is a great link between the two. We want to see that link this evening. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, notice what Paul is saying. This was very scandalous in his day. That now there is no condemnation. So, that final verdict of whether one's declared innocent or not, that one that happens at the end of the age, has now been pushed forward to the present. So you can know now if you are right with God rather than waiting for the final day. It's so scandalous. Jews would say, what do you mean now you can know? Now you can know you're innocent before God. Now you can know that end time judgment. Well, how can Paul say something like that? Because of the resurrection of Christ. G.K. Beale says this, Jesus' own resurrection, and hear this, Christ's own resurrection, when Christ raised from the dead, was an end time event that vindicated or justified him from a wrong verdict pronounced by the world's courts. The vindication of God's people against the unjust verdicts of their accusers, which was to happen at the eschaton, which is going to be the final day. But this has been pushed back to Christ's resurrection and applied to him. Notice what he's saying. He's really going off of Romans 8.1. This end time event, which God will declare if someone's guilty or innocent, has now been moved forward into history. And we see this happened at Christ's resurrection. That end time event has now been pushed forward to Christ's resurrection. And when he is raised, he is vindicated from the unjust verdict that the world pronounced upon him. This is great news. And you will know it's great news and be excited that it's great news at the very end. Trust me. So what is this relationship between justification and resurrection? I'm going to argue this evening that Christ's resurrection was his justification. Christ's resurrection was his justification. Now, <clears throat> there's not a one-to-one uh, link between our resurrection, our justification and Christ's justification. I mean, we're going to make some, we're going to make some, um, we're going to do some comparing and contrasting a little bit. Um, but we can say that at Christ's resurrection, he was vindicated. Not only before the world, but before God. Okay? Um, and what we see, especially with, with how we've, you know, Pastor Antonio and I speak about the nature of the Bible with respect to the characters of the Bible. I mean, there's only two people that matter. It's, it's Christ and Adam. And if you were to boil down the work of Christ, it would be simply that Jesus Christ undoes everything that Adam brought upon man. That's essentially what Christ does. He undoes, he heals, and he elevates all of what Adam brought upon man. Okay, He cancels out, he abolishes and does away with all the sin 
and the misery that Adam brought upon man. Romans 5, you're already there, verses 16 and 17 says this. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one offense, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses, resulting in justification. For if by the one offense of the one, for by the offense of the one, death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. What we see here, specifically how Paul talks about Adam. Notice, he says, based off of one offense, which is going to be Adam's sin in the garden, it resulted in condemnation, a death sentence, so to speak. So when you hear the condemnation, think of a sentence unto death. And then we have that this death has been reigning from Adam up to Paul's present day. So what we see here is because of Adam's sin in the garden, there was a sentence of death that was brought upon Adam, but also all of mankind. That was a sentence that God brought upon mankind. And these high verses highlight an aspect of Adam's disobedience that honestly is frequently missed. Or either not emphasized as much. And what I mean by that is this. When we think about Adam sitting in the garden, we tend to speak of it only in terms of a corruption of nature. We say, because Adam sinned, the result of that sin was now humans do sinful actions. That's a lot of how we speak of Adam's sin. Because Adam, we now do bad stuff. That's the result. We now are corrupted. And we are more inclined to disobey and sin rather than obey and live righteously. And saints, that's not wrong. I mean, we are to speak of sin as moral corruption. That because of Adam's sin, we now are inclined to sin now. And that's nothing, that's nothing wrong with that. Romans 3, verses 10 through 11, as it's written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Jeremiah 13, 23, can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then also you who do good are accustomed to evil. So I, and I can multiply verses that speak of the result of Adam's sin. Now, what's the result of Adam's sin? Being a corruption of our nature. We now are bent toward evil. We take the good and we distort it and now it's evil. But friends, we must not define us being sinners as simply those who are now inclined to sin. We must not limp. So when I say you are a sinner in Adam, we aren't to think, okay, great. I do now bad stuff. We aren't to limit us being sinners to just that. Meaning there's more to us being sinners than now we sin. There's more to us being sinners than now we sin. But when Adam sit in the garden, he brought a legal status upon us. When Adam sinned in the garden, he brought a legal status upon us. And that legal status is guilty. Each and every one of us as sinners in Adam are guilty before God. So not only did Adam bring moral corruption to our nature, but also Adam brought a legal status upon us, which is we are guilty before God. This is this is so 
essential to understanding the relationship between justification and resurrection. Quite honestly, if you, if you don't, if you miss this, then everything else is not going to make sense. That when Adam sit in the garden, we now are guilty before God. We can say that each and every one of us are guilty criminals on death row awaiting our death. That's whom we are before God. From God's perspective, we are guilty. So Adam's sin doesn't just bring more corruption, but also a legal status of guilt. And that legal status of guilt is manifested in death. Is manifested in death. Now, how does Christ fit into the picture? It's so important for us to understand this relationship between Adam and Christ. That Adam is a federal head. He represents others. Jesus Christ is a federal head. He represents others. He undoes all that Adam brought upon mankind. So Jesus, as the second Adam, the one who represents us, just as if the president or whoever represents us, Jesus Christ represents us, and Christ undergoes this judicial sentence of condemnation as our federal head. In other words, we, you and me, because of Adam's sin, have now a legal status of guilty before God. And that punishment of our sin is death. Jesus Christ, as the one who stands in our place, is condemned for us. He's condemned for us. We were condemned in Adam. Jesus says, step aside. I will be condemned for you. Meaning Jesus Christ, as our representative, pays the punishment of our sin. He pays the punishment of our sin, which is death. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans 4.25. He says, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions. In other words, Christ was delivered over to death. Christ bears our transgressions, so he bears our offense. And by bearing our offense to God, he also bears our sentence, which is death. So he bears our status of guilty before God as a federal head, but also he bears our offense or our sentence, which is death. So what we have at the cross is Jesus Christ is publicly condemned in our place. I mean, was Jesus Christ placed on the cross? Did he die um, with only uh, three people viewing it? No, it was a public event. It was for the world to see. So Jesus Christ was publicly before the world on top of a hill condemned for us. Now, one question that might arise is this. When Jesus was condemned to death, was Jesus justly condemned? Again, when Jesus was condemned to death, Was he justly condemned? Meaning, was it a legally right thing that Jesus died? So when you looked on the cross, if you were there, and you saw Jesus hanging there, could you say it's a right thing that that man is dying? Well, the answer is yes and no. As all theology and Scott would know quite well when he has conversations with me. It's always yes and no. We distinguish, right? So let me give you an example. When Christ was on the cross, who and what was the reason why he was there from a human aspect? 
Well, he was charged of blasphemy, was he not? The Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted to kill him. Why? Because he was equating himself with God. He was saying that he was the son of God. So from a human perspective, no. He shouldn't have been on the cross. Because the Pharisees and Sadducees unjustly sentenced him. They said that he wasn't righteous, the son of God, when he really was. It was an unjust verdict and sentence that the people of the day brought upon Jesus Christ. So with one respect, we can say, no, it's actually an unjust thing that he's up there. They got the verdict wrong. But from another perspective, from a spiritual, from us being reconciled to God, it actually was a right thing and a just thing that Jesus died for for us. It was a right thing that Jesus was on the cross. And why do I say that? Because remember, Jesus is our federal head. He's our representative. And what is he doing on the cross? He's carrying out our sentence, which is death. Because he represents us, what is the punishment for our sin? It's death. So as Jesus is on the cross, he's representing us and he's taking to himself our sentence, which is death. So with that aspect, we can say it is a right thing that Christ is on the cross because we should have been there. We should have been the one dying. But Christ takes our place. So was Christ... Uh, was it a legally right thing that Jesus died? Well, no, with respect to the unjust verdict that was brought upon him in the human courts. But yes, with respect to him being our federal head, it was a just thing that he died because we deserve death. And saints, this is why the resurrection of Christ is so essential. Because what we have at the death of Christ is Jesus dies, and not just as anyone, but he dies as a condemned one. In our place. It wasn't just a man there who was truly God, but he takes on our condemnation. But if Christ is not raised, then he, as well as us, are still under the condemnation of God. Paul makes this point clear in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. One theologian has said, for Jesus to remain dead would be evidence That the one who appeared to be perfectly obedient son was something less than perfectly righteous. So if if Christ did not raise on the third day, then what that means is he wasn't truly righteous. And that, and those, that unjust human court got the, got the verdict and the sentence right. Because he wasn't truly the son of God. But also we can say from, from God's perspective, Jesus Christ did not live a perfectly righteous life because God, if Christ did live a righteously perfect life, would have rewarded him with resurrected new life. So if Christ is not raised, then the human courts got it right that he is not whom he said he was. And also from God's perspective, he didn't live a truly righteous life. Because if he did, he would have been raised from the dead. So in summary, friends, because of Adam's sin, we are not only morally corrupt, but we are guilty before God. 
We are condemned. And Jesus Christ undergoes our condemnation on the cross. Now, saints, how does the resurrection of Christ fit into this? Since Jesus Christ underwent our condemnation on the cross, since he was condemned in our place, since he bore our sins and paid the penalty of sin by death, the resurrection of Christ should first and foremost be seen as Christ's resurrection or vindication. Again, since Christ bore our sins on the cross and he paid the penalty of sin by death, the resurrection of Christ should first and foremost be seen as Christ's resurrection of vindication. And the reason I say first and foremost, because many times people want to say the resurrection of Christ should be viewed first and foremost as he is truly God. And we can say that, but rather, I think the Bible clearly displays that the resurrection of Christ is Christ's justification. Gerhardus Voss explains this. Christ's resurrection was a de facto declaration of God in regard to his being just. Now, before we move to Christ's resurrection, it's important to remember that Christ's death was him undergoing our legal sense of condemnation. Not that he himself was guilty. Christ was never guilty. But as our federal head, as the one who stands in our place, he takes our legal sentence. For example, if we were criminals guilty of a crime awaiting our sentence of death, Jesus Christ stands in our place and is condemned for us. And what we see at Christ's resurrection is his status of condemned is overturned to a status of justified. That's essentially what we see on the cross condemned at the resurrection, vindicated, justified on the cross, guilty at the resurrection, innocent. Again, back to Romans five, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. But on the one hand, the judgment arose from one offense resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses resulting in justification. Now, notice one offense brought about justification. But also we see that when Christ arose, that resulted in justification. For if by the one offense or by the offense of the one death reigned through the one, how much more of those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. What we have in Adam is when Adam sinned, he brought death. When Christ was raised from the dead, He brought life. Adam's one offense brings death. Because he is guilty of breaking God's law. He is guilty of the crime. He brought about a sentence of death. Jesus Christ bears that offense. He dies. And he's raised to new life. 1 Timothy 3.16 By the common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated. Notice that. He was he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated by the spirit seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up the glory. Notice St. Paul says Christ at his resurrection was vindicated. Christ at his resurrection was vindicated. He was justified by the spirit. And that word vindicated means Christ was declared righteous. Now, remember at the cross. He's condemned at his resurrection. He's declared righteous. So what we have at Christ's resurrection of Jesus Christ is declared righteous and he's declared righteous in two ways. 
First, Jesus Christ at his resurrection is declared righteous with respect to the wrongful verdict that had been issued against him by the sinful human court. Remember the, the, the mock trial, the unjust trial that Christ underwent before his death. And remember when the people had a choice between two people, Barabbas or Christ, who should be freed? Who did they choose? They chose Barabbas, the criminal, the murderer. And they said, that one who was innocent is more of a criminal than Barabbas. It was an unjust verdict to Christ. They let the criminal go and allowed the innocent one to undergo death. At Christ's resurrection, this is beautiful, at Christ's resurrection, it is God declaring to the world, that world, you were wrong. You were wrong in your verdict against Christ. He is righteous. And Christ, at his resurrection, God is publicly announcing and declaring to everyone, he was seen by angels, he was seen by many, that this man is righteous, he's innocent. So with one respect to the world, he's declared righteous. But he's also declared righteous in the sight of God. Now, don't leave here and say that before the death of Christ, he wasn't righteous. And then when he died and when he resurrected from the dead, he was then righteous. No, Jesus Christ is always righteous. When he's raised from the dead, he doesn't earn more righteousness. He doesn't gain a righteousness that he doesn't have. He is always and truly righteous. But what we see at the resurrection of Christ is that God declares, he makes a public proclamation that his son is righteous, that he lived a perfect life of obedience. And based upon that, he rewards him with new life. So in God's sight, the one who underwent the punishment of sin is now declared righteous because he was righteous. He is truly righteous. That is why saints' death could not hold him. Not only because he was truly God, but because he was truly righteous. So at, the, at Christ's resurrection, Jesus was acquitted of his unjust crime by the world. And also he was acquitted for us as sinners before God. Remember, he goes down into the grave as a condemned one for us. And he's raised from the grave as a righteous, innocent one for us. This is why, this is what we mean, saints, when we say his death is our death and his resurrection is our resurrection. Notice what Grahadas Voss says here again. God, through suspending the forces of death, operating on him, declared that the ultimate, the supreme consequence of sin had reached its termination. In other words, the resurrection had annulled the sentence of condemnation. That, that sentence of condemned criminal that we bear, when Christ was raised from the dead, it was canceled. And when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are no longer condemned. Why? Because Christ is no longer condemned. Isaiah 50 verses nine, 5 through 9. And we're just going to read verses 5, 6, 8, and 9. The Lord had, the Lord has opened my ear. To, ear. And I was not disobedient. 
nor did I turn my back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him approach me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? This is a beautiful description of the death and resurrection of Christ. Notice, saints, the the servant song of Isaiah portrays the servant who is Jesus as having been obedient to God's call. And he suffers unjust persecution. Remember, we see that in verses 5 and 6. He says, I have not been disobedient. I did not turn my back. I gave my back to those who strike me. I was faithful to God. I underwent an unjust persecution. But then in verse 8 and 9, we get to his resurrection. And it is as if verses 8 and 9 are visibly displayed in Christ's resurrection. It is as if when Christ walks out of the tomb, he's saying, he who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Saints, you can say this too. If you are in Christ, and when Satan tries to tempt you to despair, you can say, who can approach me? Who has a case against me? The Lord helps me. Who condemns me? No one can condemn me. So to summarize what I've been saying, the resurrection of Christ is to be seen first and foremost as his justification before the world and before God. With respect to the world, an unjust verdict was pronounced upon Christ and his resurrection is a reversal of that unjust verdict. It's God saying, you were wrong. You should have picked Barabbas and not Christ. When Christ was raised from the dead, it openly declared That he was a righteous man. Isn't that interesting? Christ was openly condemned and died. And in the resurrection, he was openly declared to be the son of God. Now, with respect to God, Jesus Christ bore our sin and carried out our condemnation. He paid the penalty of sin as our representative. And his resurrection was a public declaration that the full payment of sin has been satisfied. It was God rewarding his son. That you lived an obedient life unto God and you offered a pleasing aroma to me. I reward you with new life. Now, how does this relate to us? Well, simply put, when Christ was vindicated as a resurrection, we were vindicated. When Christ was vindicated at his resurrection, we were vindicated. Not that we were vindicated at their very moment because we still had to repent and believe. But it was a promise to those who will repent and believe that when you do, you're vindicated. You're justified. Meaning when Christ was raised from the dead, it was a public declaration of his righteousness. And saints, the moment you trust in Jesus Christ alone, and you remember that day, when you... Renounce all that you were in Adam. And you received all that you are now in Jesus Christ. 
When you said, God, forgive me of my sin, I repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. At that very moment, God declared you as righteous. At that very moment, God imputed unto you the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. The same righteousness that was affirmed and announced before the world 2,000 years ago was imputed unto you and whenever you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Something in the past was applied to the present. God no longer sees us as condemned criminals, but sees us as righteous children. Why? Because Christ was declared righteous at his resurrection. Therefore, we are righteous in him. This is the gospel, is it not? And this is the great and grand doctrine of justification. Now, there are many aspects of justification that we can highlight. But as we come to a close, I want to highlight what's called the eschatological aspect of justification. The eschatological aspect of justification. Or we can say our future justification. Our future justification. Saints, because we have believed in Christ by faith alone, we are declared not guilty from God's perspective because Christ suffered the penalty of sin. Again, when you believed in Christ by faith alone, at that moment, God declared you innocent. It was a a definitive declaration. You cannot be more justified than you are currently right now. Because if you were to be more justified, then that must mean that Christ has to be more justified. So you are at this very moment, if you believe in Jesus Christ, definitively justified, declared innocent. When Christ was raised from the dead, now think about Christ when he was raised from the dead. He was declared righteous, remember, in God's sight and the world's sight. God's sight and the world's sight. Now, the question I want you to consider is this. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, so think at that moment when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, were we declared righteous in God's sight and in the world's sight? No. We were declared righteous in God's sight, but not the world's sight. The world doesn't know (laughs) that you are righteous in God's sight other than the good works that you produce. But they can't see you. The world doesn't have the same perspective of you that God has of you. In other words. And that's fine. I just want God's perspective of me. I just want God to know and declare me that I'm righteous. But but that doesn't follow the pattern of Christ's resurrection, though. Christ, when he was raised, was raised in the sight of God and in the sight of the world. There will come a day, saints, when our justification in Christ, when our righteousness in Christ will be publicly displayed before the world. Notice what I'm saying. There will come a day when the world will see you as righteous. When there will be a public display 
of the righteousness that you currently have. That the world will have the same perspective of you that God has of you. The world does not recognize God's vindication of his people. They don't recognize that in us. The way uh, God recognizes the vindication of his people is far different than the world, is it not? G.K. Beale says, just as happened to Jesus, the ungodly world has judged the saints' faith and obedience to God to be in the wrong. Isn't that true of you? Isn't that what they say of us? Because we are obedient to God, the world says we're wrong in that. We're wrong to believe in ancient documents. We're wrong to not be progressive. To go with the times. We're wrong in that. G.K. Beale says, which has been expressed through the persecution of God's people. This is one of the ways that the world persecutes us. Why? Because we will not conform. We will not bow down to their vain philosophy. In God's sight, we have been declared righteous when we believed in Christ by faith. Yet the world continues to declare us guilty. We're righteous in God's sight, but the world continues to tell us that we're wrong. We're guilty. We are enemies of the world. But saints, there will be a day when God will vindicate or he will publicly justify us before the world. And this follows the pattern of Christ's justification. At Christ's resurrection, God publicly announces to the world that his son is righteous. And at our resurrection from the dead, when our souls are reunited with our bodies and we are caught up in the air with Christ, Christ will publicly announce before the world, before the wicked, that we are righteous. At our resurrection, saints, God before the wicked will vindicate the truth of our faith and he will confirm that which he already confirmed in the past, that you're righteous. That which God declares you now, God will declare before the world, before the wicked, that on the account of Jesus Christ, we are innocent and we are righteous. So saints, hold on to the faith that has been delivered to the saints throughout the years. Hold on that it is only by Christ and Him alone that one has access to the Father. Hold on that there is nothing that you can do to earn your salvation, but only on the account of Jesus Christ and His righteousness that God sees me as innocent. Why should I hold on to that? Well, not only because you will merit heaven, but one day you will be vindicated before the world. That the righteous ones are the unrighteous ones, those wicked ones that see you now as guilty will one day see you as innocent. I end with Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will be so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, but for you, saints of Reformation Bible Church, you, you who fear the Lord, you who fear my name, 
The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go down leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. You will be vindicated. And you will be on your horses trampling down the wicked. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.